Heavenly Father, we come to you with great hope and expectation. Not only because you created all things and you sustain all things, but because you love us dearly. So much so that you sent your own son to secure for us an everlasting joy in your presence. And so, Father, what I, I would love for, for me and for my friends today to experience is for you to come and open our eyes, looking at this passage in Colossians, and show us the glory and the beauty of Christ Jesus with clarity, Father God, with power. I pray that you would do that today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians 1.24. We're making progress in this chapter. I really feel good about the next two or three weeks getting into chapter two, which is, uh, seemed like it was going to be an impossibility like two months ago, but we're actually going to make it. Colossians 1.24. Every single human being on this planet desires one thing ultimately and one thing alone. It is a universal passion of the human heart and mind, and it is inescapable. There isn't anything like this. There are no exceptions to this rule. There are no deviations to this pursuit. It is true no matter what you believe. It is true no matter where you were born. It is true no matter where you're going. It's always this one thing that humans pursue. It is the foundation of every motivation you've ever had and every design you've ever had. It is the focus of our pursuits and ambitions. It is all ultimately one thing, and that one thing is joy. We want to be happy. We want to be glad. And this is one thing that every human being desires and pursues without fail. This is what the consummate desire and consummate pursuit of humanity is joy. Flannery O'Connor says, Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, too, as it is a highly dangerous quest. And the Westminster Confession, written by the doctors hundreds of years ago, says, what is the chief end of man? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So don't miss that. Man's chief end is to enjoy, to experience joy. Human beings were wired to pursue joy, even when we're broken humans and we pursue joy in broken ways. We are still pursuing joy. It's still what we're after. I know this personally because I feel it. I feel the desire to pursue joy. I know this because I see it in other people. Everyone else I've ever met and interacted with, they pursue joy. And I know this pursuit because Scripture tells me this is the purpose for which we were made. Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
In whose presence? God's presence, the one for whom we were made. His presence is where human beings are purposed and intended to be one day, to end. That's our ultimate purpose, and therefore joy is our ultimate purpose. And I'm stating this because I want us today, over the next 30 minutes or so, to be like Flannery O'Connor. I want us to stock joy for the next half an hour. And not just any joy. I want us to stock invincible, unshakable joy. That's the purpose of today. A kind of joy, a species of joy that can never, ever, ever be taken away from you. Colossians 1, 24 through 25 says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me that was given me to that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. For the past two weeks we've been as a church engaging something called the ministry of reconciliation and we've been talking about God's work of reconciliation in human history and God's work of reconciliation in our own lives. And this week, we're going to start to shift a little bit, and we're going to turn and look at what our role is. What is our role in the ministry of reconciliation? And I thought it would be good at the start of our time today to actually explain where the phrase ministry of reconciliation comes from. Where does that originate from? Because this phrase, ministry of reconciliation, does not appear in Colossians. In fact, it only appears in 2 Corinthians 5 but it has everything to do with the rest of the Bible, including the book of Colossians. So listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So Paul is saying here that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is an act of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says that because of this act, there is something that that exists in reality called the message of reconciliation. And those who are entrusted with the message of reconciliation are called ambassadors for Christ. What does this mean? It means that when someone shares the message of reconciliation, it is not them ultimately who is communicating it. It is God. It's his message. Paul said, says that God is making his appeal through us. It's God's message, God's appeal, even if we're speaking it. And we saw this, that in last, last week we saw in Colossians 1.23, that this message of reconciliation is actually just another way of saying 
gospel. 123 says, The hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul uses this word minister here in verse 23. He used it, if you noticed it, in verse 25 when he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. This word minister in Greek actually means, literally means, servant. We, we have a lot of ideas of what minister means because we've got about 2,000 years removed from the original word. It actually literally means servant. So Paul is saying, I am a servant of the body of Christ. That's my job. I'm a servant of the church. And so as a servant, what does Paul do? What is it that Paul accomplishes as a servant? Paul says in verse 25 that he makes the word of God fully known. And we could spend hours on this, and next week we'll dive into it a little bit um, to just unpack what it means. But Paul's main point here in saying it this way is that he doesn't leave out anything when he preaches the gospel. He doesn't leave out anything when he preaches the gospel. He proclaims all of God's word. He proclaims all of God's message of reconciliation. And the reason why this is, is because we've already said that this isn't Paul's message. He's not communicating something that he conceived of in his mind. He is communicating God's message. It's not just about whatever Paul feels comfortable about saying. It's not about whatever he feels like he has the right to say. It is about communicating what God has said, period. God is, as in 2 Corinthians 5 says, making his appeal through us. It's his appeal. So Paul is acting as God's mouth when he does this, when he takes up this stewardship, this ministry. He isn't God's editor. He isn't even God's translator. He is God's mouth, and he makes the words of God, the message of God, fully known. And, and the source of Paul's service here isn't arbitrary. He says, I received it from God as a stewardship. What does he mean by stewardship? Well, the, stu the term for steward here in the Greek is that it is a position of management or administration. It is like being the head of a household, the, the household manager. <laughs> and <clears throat> Paul is saying, the reason I'm serving the body of Christ is because I've been given this stewardship. I've been given this responsibility. My function and my purpose, my God-given function and purpose is a responsibility, is a stewardship and everything that comes along with that stewardship, everything that that stewardship entails. And if you're familiar with the Bible at any level, really, you probably recognize the story, the time in which Paul did receive this stewardship from God um, on his way to Damascus as he was attempting to export persecution against the Christians in another city near Jerusalem. And it's critical we actually go back there for just a moment and see this stewardship given to Paul and see what the implications are. So in Acts 9, verse 3, we'll have it up on the screen. If you want to, you can turn there. Acts 9, verse 3, we read, we, read, we read this. Easy for me to say. Now, as he went on his way, he, that is Paul, or he's called here Saul, approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so Saul, in this encounter here, is completely blinded. He's blinded. He has to be brought into the city of Damascus by people he's with. And a man named Ananias, a believer, a Christian named Ananias, is told by Christ to go to him and to pray for him. This is an issue for Ananias because Ananias is a believer and he knows this is Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians. You want me to go and meet this person. Here's the exchange between Christ and Ananias. It is amazing. Listen to close, closely to what he says, what Jesus says about Paul's stewardship. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christ says to Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument. He is my chosen instrument to do what? to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. All of which he does in the subsequent chapters of the book of Acts. The gospel, as verse 23 says, has been proclaimed in all creation. The entire known world has heard this. And this is Paul's stewardship. This is God's design for him. Now, two things I want to key in about this interaction between Christ and Paul and between Ananias and Paul eventually when he prays for him. Notice that when Jesus engages Paul, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my disciples? That's a true statement. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't even say, why are you harming the way? That's the name of the Christian religion back then. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? The first lesson that Paul gets in Christian theology is that Christ's union with believers is so profound, so deep, that they are his body. They are his body. If you attack his followers, it is an attack on him. This is not just a figurative sense. This is not just metaphorical. There is a deep, connection between Christ and his people that is substantial and real. It's a supernatural connection that actually points to marriage. In fact, this reality here, Christ and his church, his bride, is the main reason that marriage exists in the first place. Ephesians 5 tells us that. The two become one flesh, bridegroom and bride. That's why we are called the body of Christ. And marriage exists as a means by which we can see it, see the greater reality of Christ and his bride. That's the first thing from Paul's conversion that I want to key in on. This is the second. What is the last thing we learn about Paul 
in this, message, in this passage? What's the last thing that we learn about Paul? What does Jesus say about Paul's purpose? According to verse six, 16, it's this. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Must suffer. We got to be careful not to try to get in there and domesticate what's being said here. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, listen, I want you to preach my name and we'll just figure out what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the response is. He isn't saying that. He isn't even saying, I want you to preach my name and here's the potential possibility. You might suffer in this situation. Just know that going in. He's not even saying that. He is saying, I want to show you, Paul, how much you must suffer for my name. This isn't something that Christ sees in the future and wants to tell Paul up front. This is the appointed manifestation of Paul's stewardship. It is what his stewardship looks like. Galatians 1.15 says that God set Paul apart before he was even born for this purpose. There is a specific design here that Paul has to come to grips with. And this purpose, his suffering is fully met in his life. This is not an empty promise that Jesus makes to him. 2 Corinthians 11 says, this is Paul talking, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The Apostle Paul suffered for Christ Jesus. Hopefully, that is unquestionable. It is a historic fact. And it is staggering to consider that all of that that he just mentioned happened for the sake of the name of Christ for the sake of the body of the church. It happened because he proclaimed the word of God fully. He didn't get beat up here because he was quiet. He didn't get beat up here because he minded his own business or he just tried to live a good life. He got jacked up here because he preached the gospel. He preached the whole counsel of God. He didn't leave anything out and people didn't like it. That's what Acts 20 says. He preached the whole counsel of God, did not shrink back. Now, given that fact, given what we just learned about Paul's stewardship, I want to press back into Colossians 1.24 and ask a few questions. Colossians 1.24 says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. There is a profound irony in this sentence. What he is describing here in this sentence is the diametric opposite of what he did prior to his conversion. Think about it for a second. As a militant Pharisee, he was causing horrific suffering to the church by imprisoning and executing prison, uh, Christians. 
That's what Paul was known for before Damascus. That's what he was known for. That was his marquee. That's what Ananias says. This man has been doing this to the Christians. And when he afflicted Christians, he was afflicting Christ. He was afflicting Christ Jesus. But now he says he is the one that's enduring the suffering for the sake of the church. He is the one that is filling up the afflictions of Christ. It is almost virtually impossible, probably, for us without a supernatural interaction by God for us to feel the weight of this paradigm shift. Paul has changed from a persecutor of Christians to one who is going to be persecuted and who is willing to be persecuted on behalf of Christians. He goes from desiring that all Christians suffer to desiring that he might suffer for all Christians. How does that happen? That's what it means by saying, for the sake of the body. He is doing it for the glory of Christ in his body of believers. In fact, Paul describes it as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, which is a very strange way to, uh, to say that. Like, why describe it like that? It sounds on the surface almost like heresy, right? What could possibly be lacking from Christ's work? How could you possibly fill up anything that's lacking from Christ's work? So what is Paul getting, back, getting at? Why is he saying it this way? And the answer, of course, if we ask the question, what is lacking from, from the afflictions of Christ? The answer, of course, is nothing. The atoning work of Christ Jesus to redeem his people lacked nothing. And we need to be clear about that because Paul would be clear about that. In 2 Corinthians 5, after compassing what the ministry of reconciliation looks like, he tells us the message of reconciliation, which is this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is that Christ gets all of our sin, every drop of it, we get all of his righteousness, and the way Hebrews 7.25 describes it is that Christ is able to save to the uttermost, for all time. One sacrifice, one sacrifice is all it took, and he redeems his people for all time. Hebrews 10, 14 says that the worth of Jesus Christ, his blood was one single sacrifice, and in that sacrifice, in that sacrifice, it had the capacity to save every human being who believed a a trillion times over. That's the worth of Christ Jesus. There is nothing at all lacking from the atonement of Christ. So why is Paul saying that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Or, probably a better way to ask this question would be, what is Paul suffering here that Christ did not suffer on the cross? A clue to help us out is actually found in Philippians 2.30, which, if you've got a paper Bible... You turn one page to the left and you'll be at Philippians 2.30. This is what it says. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is Paul talking, and he's talking here about a he, that he is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brought a care package from the Philippian church to Paul while he was in prison. And The Philippians pulled together this gift. The gift was complete. It was what they had promised Paul, but Epaphroditus had to bring it. 
And in the Greek, the exact same language here is used that is used in Colossians. To complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's what Paul describes. That's how he describes this transaction. So what was lacking from the Philippians' gifts? What did Epaphroditus complete? Well, he brought it to Paul. He was the one who physically took the gift and brought it to Paul. And he almost died doing it. He took the full gift and he completed their service to him by bringing it to Paul. And if we look at Colossians, when we think about how Paul fills up what is lacking in the the afflictions of Christ Jesus, hopefully we can see that, that what he means here is that he is physically bringing the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it. That's what he's doing. He is taking the beauty and the glory and the reality of Christ's perfect atonement, and he is bringing that and communicating it to people who need to hear it. And for Paul, that too would nearly cost him his life. In fact, many times over, which is what he means by saying, filling up the afflictions of Christ Jesus. At the end of his letter to the Galatians, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This man suffered for Christ. He suffered for the sake of the body. And so when we think about the ministry of reconciliation, and when we think about our role just generally in the ministry of reconciliation, the only thing that's lacking in the afflictions of Christ Jesus is the suffering incurred by believers who bring the message of reconciliation to others. God manifests his great love for sinners through the sacrifice and suffering of people who declare the gospel. That's how he manifests his love perfectly. Let me repeat that. The reason for this, that God, let me say it this way, God is manifesting visibly, visibly his love for unbelievers by sending his own people like he sent Christ Jesus to suffer and even die if that's necessary in order that they might have the hope of the gospel. And we learned earlier that this was what Paul was explicitly appointed for, to suffer for the sake of Christ. But the most remarkable thing about this isn't Paul's afflictions. It isn't his suffering. It isn't that he was beaten. It isn't that he was uh, endured any of these things. The most remarkable thing about Paul in this Colossians 124 passage, passage is this. It's at the beginning of verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Rejoice in my sufferings. What does he mean by that? It doesn't even seem possible. 2 Corinthians 7 says, In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. It's not even conceivable what he means by that. In affliction, you overflow with joy. Philippians 2 is probably the most amazing example of these. There are many throughout the New Testament. He says in Philippians 2, 17 through 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering for the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is, in this passage, inviting them into his joy in dying for their faith. He's inviting them into his own joy that he experiences as he lays his life down for them. 
is ridiculous. This is not the spirit of self-preservation. This is not the spirit of seeking out comforts. This is the spirit of a joyful, radically joyful sacrifice for the sake of Christ Jesus. And the question we should ask, is this phenomenon exclusive to Paul? Is it something that only Paul actually engages in scriptures? And the answer to that is, is no, it's not. The first Christians to suffer any kind of physical persecution, we see their response, Acts 5. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or what about the admonition from James, the brother of Jesus? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And just last week, we looked at 1 Peter, where Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. He said, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. This wasn't just Paul. This is everywhere in the New Testament to every kind of believer in the New Testament. In fact, it is the anticipation of all early Christians to suffer joyfully for Christ. Look at Acts 14. So Paul plants a bunch of churches in Asia Minor. Then he goes back through them and he does this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter. This is discipleship 101 for Paul. He wants them to know this and to expect it. But I want to pivot just a little bit and be a little bit introspective at this point. And I want to ask some tough questions. Why is it, and I'm asking these questions of me as well, why is it that it's so difficult for us to witness? Why is it that it's so difficult that if, if we actually believe that Christ is who he says he is, why is it so difficult for us to share that message? And why is it so easy just to avoid sharing it, talk about something else? Here's why. Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody likes to suffer. Suffering is the main reason why most Christians are immobilized in their witness. Human beings, like I said at the beginning, are wired to pursue their joy. And if we're honest, talking about Jesus, the way this book talks about Jesus, isn't going to do that. Doesn't seem like it's going to do that, at least. If you proclaim the exclusivity and the power of the gospel... I can make a pretty confident promise that in most spheres you will not be favored or liked. In fact, um, <laughs> we often question whether or not we should do it because our jobs are on the line. Our friendships are on the line. Our relationships are on the line. Our reputation is on the line. And we want to be happy. We want to be happy. We're made that way. We want joy. And if we take those things away, we take our job away, we take our financial security away, we take our relationships away, we fear that we will not have joy. But here's the thing. Colossians 1.24 and all of the texts that we've looked at today exist explicitly to tell us that isn't true. 
That isn't true. It is a lie. There is a kind of joy, an unshakable joy, that this world doesn't know, that this world doesn't experience. And it is possessed by Christians who are willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, the question we should have here is, how exactly do we get it? Why do we have this? Why do the Christians in these passages have this? And John 16, in the words of Jesus, tell us. He is answering the fears of his disciples. They are confused. They are concerned. They recognize that he's been talking crazy about leaving them, and he is going to engage them head on. And Jesus, it says in John 16, starting with verse 19, knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is given birth, giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The kind of joy Jesus is referring to here is the joy that we see in verse 22. It's an invincible, unshakable kind of joy. It says, no one can take it away from you. Nothing in this world can take this kind of joy away from you. And if you're tempted to believe that the joy he's talking about here may just be related to some future heavenly kind of joy in his presence, some eschatological joy that we might experience in the next life, um, Listen to what he says just a few seconds later. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have it. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So you want to know how Paul is able to say, I rejoice in my sufferings? I rejoice in my sufferings. How in the midst of overwhelming tribulation and affliction and that string of brutal torture that he experienced when he preached the gospel that he's able to say, I am overflowing with joy. It's because Christ Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome the world. On that cross, Jesus purchased our everlasting joy. He purchased our joy that would be invincible and unshakable, and that begins the moment we embrace Christ Jesus in faith. That doesn't start some future time. That starts now. An unwavering, unstoppable joy 
especially if we lean in and endure the sufferings of Christ. I love it how Jesus articulates this here. It's powerful. If you just go back there with him and hear him say it, his disciples are going to abandon him. They are going to leave him alone. His closest friends. He says, you will abandon me. You will abandon me. But I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I just want to speak a promise over you. This is not just for Jesus. Because it's said throughout the entire Bible. This is for us, for those who trust in Christ. In this life, and especially when you boldly open your mouth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to know He is with you. He's with you in that moment when it seems impossible to get the words out of your mouth clearly, when it seems like you're going to be hated for this, when you're going to be shamed for this, He is with you and He loves you in that moment. He's with you there. And if you've tasted this joy, the joy that's found in Christ Jesus, if you've tasted it, the joy that he secured by overcoming the world, I promise you it can fuel a lifetime of mission for the name of Christ, no matter where you find yourself. A lifetime, decades upon decades of sacrifice for Christ Jesus and for the sake of his body. And if you don't believe me, I want to tell you a story. Adoniram Judson is considered the first Protestant missionary that left America and went to foreign lands. He was born in 1789, and he was called by God to go to the people of Burma. But before leaving America, he found himself in love with a young lady named Anne Hasseltine, and he loved her. He wanted to marry her, but marriage to him was a one-way trip. He was going to Burma, and he was going to be there for the long haul, probably his whole life in his mind. So he asked for her hand in marriage, and he first asks her father because of what this, what's at stake. <laughs> and that's what I want to key in on. I want you to know Adoniram Judson counted the cost of following Jesus Christ. And he embraced it with joy. He was driven by invincible joy. And I want you to listen to his words as he describes to who he wants to be his future father-in-law about what he's inviting this man's daughter into. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this 
in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Her father would give the blessing and Anne would gladly, gladly go to Burma because for Adoniram and for Anne, they were controlled by the love of Christ completely. They were dominated by Jesus Christ. They saw this world through the holes in his hands and they wanted to go after the people he bought. And they knew it was worth it to suffer for the sake of the body. Do you have that kind of joy? Do you have that kind of joy that can do that? Are you so captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, so overwhelmed by his immeasurable beauty and his impossibly deep grace for us, for sinners like me and like you, that you would do that? We were made for this joy, this invincible joy. We were made to have gladness forever. Every other joy we have in this life, every other single joy that we could experience in this life is a mere pittance compared to the joy expressed by Paul in Colossians 1.24 and expressed by Adoniram Judson in his letter to his future father-in-law. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering because my joy was bought by Christ Jesus and the focus of my joy is Christ Jesus alone. And therefore, it is invincible. No matter how many times I'm beaten for it, no matter how many times I'm scourged for it, no matter how many times they throw stones at me, I do not care. I love Christ Jesus. And he purchased for me invincible joy. As we take communion, I want you to recognize that the body and blood of Christ Jesus, these elements that we will celebrate and proclaim, secured for us this joy, this kind of joy. A joy that can, according to Jesus, never be taken away. And if you do not, even if you're a believer and you do not have this joy, if you don't feel it, it's not a controlling reality in your life, ask the Father. Plead with Him today and tell Him, I want this joy in Christ Jesus. I want this joy a kind of joy that is fixed on the glory of God. And this, this isn't magical. You ask him, and then you continue to ask him, and you continue to ask him, and you continue to ask him, and you do everything in your power to fill your heart and your mind with the glory of Christ. It's not a magical thing. You don't just download joy. You read about him. You look at him. You embrace him. You worship him. You pray to him. You seek him. And that is how you get joy. Your affections get wrapped up in all that he is for you. And I pray that you do get it and receive it. Um, and then I pray that you would drown every fear that you've got, every single drop of fear in your body that would stop you from boldly witnessing Christ Jesus with that joy. Just take that joy and pour it on your fears until you can't even hear them anymore. We were made to declare his glory and to enjoy him forever. 
And one day, my prayer for us as a body of believers and for all of the people that we have interactions with is that one day we will enter the world of glory. And my hope, my prayer, is that when that happens for me and when that happens for you, we will be given a crown of righteousness that is brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound from our, for our Savior from the mouths of people who came in contact with Christ Jesus because of what we said. They heard the gospel from our lips and their eternity was changed. As you worship him today, plead for that invincible joy. Plead to God for it and then be radically bold to lean into it because that's what we were made to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've designed us and created us such that we desire and pursue joy. And the greatest news in the world is that the only place we can get full and lasting joy is in the embrace of our Heavenly Father. What a gift. What a gift. And yet this world is racked by a turning away from that embrace to embrace every other possible thing. We call that sin. And what we need right now, Father, is to feel your love so powerfully, so intimately that the joy in our hearts leads us to be bold in places we never would have thought we could be bold, leads us to open our mouths and invite people into the embrace of the one who made them in ways that we never could have conceived of because our joy is unshakable. It looks at Christ Jesus and says, you're the one I was made for. You're the reason I am. And therefore, everything in my life, every single thing in my life will be for your glory, for the purpose of your praise, and that people might see what I see in you, Jesus. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, that we would have this. Amen.